I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi, it's Lainey. Hey, it's Duanna. Welcome to Show Your Work. And welcome to... Yep. <laughs> Never going to do that intro. I mean, what do I say? Yes, welcome. I continue to welcome you. I... I am now turning the tables because I want to know about your work. I mean, Tub Shroom, call me. We talked about this. <laughs> no, we're not talking about Tub Shroom. No. We're still talking about the college admissions scandal. Oh, my God. Can I so, tell you how blissful it is that I said the other day when somebody was talking about hockey, I sort of mused like, what would it be like if everybody loved your favorite hobby this way in public, out in person? And that's what's happening now yeah. for a week and a half, people are talking about Not even. It's basically the one week anniversary. Yeah. Of the story breaking. Yeah. And it is my joy. It, yeah. Look, this year has been, I mean, I think a couple months ago already I had said that this is the year of the scam. I had no idea that all these scams would keep coming down the pipe. But when this scam blew, first of all, you were away. Mm-hmm. So you weren't like checking headlines obsessively the way we do when we're at home. No, I was, uh, I had my stuff open, but I was leisurely by the pool, um, just enjoying my life in the sun, texting with my friends. Right. When you texted, oh my God, <laughs> oh my God. When I was like, holy shit, celebrity college admissions scandal. Then I dumped the link on you. Yeah. And I think it took you, well, I was surprised. I thought the turnaround was going to be 10 seconds, but because you were by the pool, yeah. <laughs> when you did get back to me, I could hear you. I couldn't wait. Like when this story broke, I was like, holy fuck, Duanna, 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 Duanna. And then when you got back to me, I was, I was just waiting for your reaction. I mean, let's be clear. I think it was three minutes. It was not like, <laughs> it wasn't that long by any means. But I said you were like, this was made for you. Yes. And the first article, the very first piece, I think it was a USA Today piece or an ABC News piece that you sent, which was basically four lines, you know, the yeah. first bit of information that they dropped. Yeah. Um, oh no, I did. I did that on purpose. I wanted you to go looking like to go looking for it as if I was going to send you the whole fucking 258 well, page document. Yeah. But look, people had barely scratched the surface at that point. At that point on Tuesday morning, it looked like it was a, an athletic scholarship scandal. That's what people thought it was going to be. And you were waiting for names like Indiana or whatever right. to come through. Uh, which was not that. Interestingly, the first place I went after uh, I read that article was to the uh, terrifying, wonderful Urban Baby, which (laughs) is an online anonymous message board of New York City parents. And they knew it was coming. Somebody there was like, it's going to explode. Watch this. And everybody's like, what are you talking about, you scammer? You're lying, troll. And then the link dropped and everybody went, oh, my God. 
it's, I, I you know. So they you know had the goods before. The- Somebody there worked in some way right. that they knew it was going to happen. And uh, yeah, those people were on it. So it, it made my Tuesday morning for sure. Okay. So this piece that you wrote for our site, in my opinion, and in many other people's opinions, Duanna, was the most comprehensive piece that was available because of your expertise and your talent, but it's because you have spent 25 years doing research on this very scandal before it became a scandal. A hundred percent. And I really appreciate that. Thank you. But it was so gratifying because, yeah, I was gobbling up everything I could see, obviously, but also seeing all the gaps in people's understanding or the questions that people were being asked. I think I talked about it in that article that people were like, why didn't they just donate a building? And it's so much more complex than that. So it was a great joy to, yes, write my, basically my thesis (laughs) on this scandal and how it came to be. Okay. So to the work then, how did you, like, because we talked about it or we texted about it. I was like, okay, you're the only person who can write about this. So um, are you going to be able to do it for tomorrow? You are on holiday. Talk to me about your process. Well, I should say to that end, to the you are on holiday part, I mean, this is the wonderful part about having a nerdism that you indulge in. As soon as I told my family what the story was, uh, Mike was like, oh my God, I'm so excited for you like to write this. Like, <laughs> There was no doubt that whatever we were going to do that day was right. going to be thrown out. But I wanted to wait because the stories that come out in any story, the stories that come out at first are news, right? They're just like, these are the facts. These are the things. Um, And I wanted to have the time uh, because we talked about that. Should we get something up for Tuesday for same day? But I wanted to have the time to get into why this happened. So that was the first conversation is, do we have the time for this? Yeah. And then it was really for me about as I say, finding the gaps. Because the biggest thing people don't know is that Ivy League admissions a generation ago were for the middle class or upper middle class who were real keeners at school. Like probably most of the people who are listening to this podcast who got mostly A's, who were keeners, who participated really well or were the heads of some clubs or whatnot, that was enough back then to go to Yale, to go to Princeton. If you were kind of clever and could turn around a good essay and maybe had an after-school job or a project, that that was enough. And so part of this all happened because that's not enough anymore and because parents are so frustrated and annoyed that those stamps of approval, oh, I went to the Ivy League, aren't as easy to achieve for their children as they were for themselves. So that was kind of the thesis that I wanted to explain and where I went from there about why it's not so achievable. Now, I remember as your editor, essentially, when yeah, I'm like, yeah. when we're talking back and forth, like, when do we get this up? I was always thinking the next day, like, you know, I want it to be a good comprehensive piece. We don't have to rush it. And also, I know, I know there's value in waiting. I was able to let people know, listen, we're, we're on it. Trust me. And this is going to be worth the wait. I can't wait to read Duanna's piece. So I know you're going to like, you're going to fucking jizz your pants um, when it finally goes up. So that was not a concern. But then, like, I don't know, around the fourth or fifth round of texts, 
you <laughs> you started panicking because you were missing reference materials that you had at home and not with you it's on so your true. trip. So you were saying to me, that's when you started saying to me, shit, I fuck, I need my book at home, the Vanity Fair book on schools and this and that. And I'm like, Jesus, Duanna, like as if you haven't memorized that book already, but calm down. Yeah. I mean, look, this is, uh, in this whole story, of course, is our friend Lorella, who shares our interest in these things, who was on our group text when you dropped that story. And that book, which is a Vanity Fair collection of essays about scandals at prep schools and universities, was a gift that she sent me one day out of the blue, just because she knew that I would digest and memorize, as yeah. you say. Um, so, yeah, but but... It does feel like there's so many corners of the internet that only I visit, which isn't true because, of course, they're populated by millions of people, but they don't come up in our day-to-day pop culture conversations. So hell yeah, I went to College Confidential and to Urban Baby and to all the kind of weird corners of admissions and, uh, yeah, the, the book admission that Tina Fey's movie is based on, like, I assume that movie got a bit of a bump. Uh, this week because it's of the same ilk for sure. Uh, yeah, I, I, you're right. This is a file in my brain where the algebra should be. Well, but I mean, it also speaks to a common thread on this podcast about the quirky like corner that you occupy and being able to write that show and write that movie. It came up for you, Duanna. <laughs> Your lottery was called. Every time. So there's a phrase that an actor friend of mine uses uh, from her agent called ready for Rome. She wants her clients to always be ready for Rome, which in the case of an actor means, you know, always be in gym shape and have your hair done and have your whatever. So that if if your number comes up, if the part that comes up or the whatever is perfect for you, that you're not waylaid by oh, I haven't been practicing or I, I, don't shaved. Have, I don't have a good song in my repertoire, yeah. whatever it is. So that to me is about being ready for Rome in your own nerd corner, yep. whatever it is. Yes, if a, like, if a feng shui scandal breaks tomorrow, hello, you are ready, <laughs> right? Like you're already there. Call me. Yeah, it's not yeah. trying to do all the background. No. It's all that time that you've spent when you're like, God, I should be doing my taxes, but I just want to read this other thing comes into play and you're like, oh, it all was for something, which also is the justification for a lot of procrastination, which is, uh, which is, you know, can be bad. No, but this is the specific thing you're really good at. I love like, it. Like when we I talk about so specificity much. and universality, mm-hmm. it just so happened that a universally compelling scandal met your specific skill set. That's exactly right. Yeah. And I'm, could not be more delighted about that. It, it feels, I should say too, I just want to say it feels vindicating as well because you go, see, I told you it was fascinating. I told you there was all kinds of drama in this story, in this arena, but like, I don't know, I'm sure there's drama and in, you know, wrestling and, or <laughs> I don't know, the soft drink industry. Um, but I'm not the person to tell you, uh, somebody out there is. And so it's so gratifying when you go, yeah, let me show you how exciting this is and where it's exciting. So one of the points you hit and you open with this is the fetishization of elite schools. Mm -hmm. And 
I do also, not to like jump right up your ass, but I do also believe that you are the only person to characterize it as such, this fetishization. I think you're right. Which comes from us collectively. Like, you know, you sometimes walk around with a Harvard notebook. And uh, yeah, I've known to do that. Yeah, I've been known to. A friend of ours studied um, like a business course at Harvard and was like, hey, do you guys want anything? And all of us put in like a shopping list. I want a tank top. I walk around with a tank top. Did I go to Harvard? Fuck no. Um, I think no. you have a tank top too. Or For sure. A sweatshirt. I, have a, I have a hoodie and I yeah. will visit any college bookstore regardless of the of the elite level of the school just to check out their like, their sweatshirt regalia. I want to yeah. know what's on offer, you know? Now I was on faculty at a university in Canada, yep. Western a University. highly regarded. It's a highly regarded university here in Canada. I should say um, for U.S. or international listeners, Canada, of course, doesn't have an Ivy League. There are a million reasons that are too mm-hmm. big for us to go into, but there isn't such a thing. But Western University, as it's now called, right? Yep. Um, is... It looks like an ivy. It's ivy covered. It's got old stone buildings on bucolic hills. It's a beautiful campus. Right. But it it has that feel a bit as opposed to some real urban colleges or some more modern ones or whatever. It looks like an Ivy League school. It has a great business school. Mm -hmm. I think it's an excellent institution, Mm -hmm. obviously. I mean, I'm showing – I also graduated from Western. Yeah, you're a a, a I'm a Mustang. Yes. Yes. Or what's the word you would say? (laughs) A homer. (laughs) I'm a homer. And yet, um, there are people here in Canada – I mean, there was at least one Canadian on this admission scandal list, right? Yep. David Sudhu from Vancouver. Um, And so my question to you is, is this going to change? Do we have to stop fetishizing these places and encourage people to go to Western? Western is a great school. In my year when I taught there, um, we produced a Rhodes Scholar. They are at Oxford right now. Well, look, I should tell you that it's already happening. So on some of those college sites that I have talked about, people will discuss other options. Because again, the Ivy League is considered all but impossible for only the very, very few, right? Uh, Except out the people who are BFF with the registrar. And it's for the mass populace, it's already a pipe dream. They're already fetishizing schools on the next tier down. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the hilarious things is that some people have caught on to Canadian schools giving a great education at a fraction of the price. Price is always a consideration. And inevitably, they talk about another Canadian school, McGill uh, or U of T, and say, McGill is considered to be the Harvard of Canada, at which point any Canadians on the boards start laughing. They're like, no, it isn't. It's considered to be McGill, which is to say a great school in its own regard. But that's a roundabout way of saying, yeah, of course, people should and will cast their gazes wider Mm -hmm. in terms of the schools they're going to attend. Yeah. But I don't think the fetishization is going away. People want that rubber stamp of I'm going to the best asterisk place I can afford, or I'm going to the best asterisk place that isn't embroiled in the scandal. That's the answer then, because I, I feel like, as you noted in your comprehensive piece, there isn't just one angle to the problem. It's so multi-layered. Like there is corruption within the institutions. There is obviously corruption with the parents who are trying to get their kids in. 
and all that, this and the other. But part of it is our buy-in. Like, they're only allowed to have this status when people like us are sitting around wanting to brag about our nephews and nieces and daughters and sons and whatnot getting in. Of course. And that's, you know, natural on some level, right? That uh, the the same way you would say, uh, oh, my son is the head of the water polo team in China or whatever the lie was, right? Yeah. That people want to brag about those things because they became braggable, because there's yes. been generations of people saying, well, if you're a Harvard man, then blah, yeah. blah, blah, right? Like 90% of Gilmore Girls was predicated on a Harvard and Yale fetish. Um, so yeah, we buy into it for sure. And I just want to shout out for a second, I have gotten all kinds of amazing uh, notes and comments and letters that I love. But in particular, I've gotten a lot of notes from people who are involved in university admissions, either in reading applications uh -huh. or who work in admissions offices, and they are all protected under cloak of secrecy, but my God, the work of these people and their work in sharing some of the processes is really fascinating. And I hope to safely disseminate some of that information soon. So all of those people are aware of the fetishization happening and the ways that it's happening on various tiers of schools that are, of course, just as good, mm -hmm. give us just as good an education, but aren't necessarily a known name brand yeah. in the same way yet. Well, I also, to end, I want to share a story about how this can happen in reverse. Sure. So, as you know, I taught at Western mm -hmm. last year, mm -hmm. and one of my students was a Rhodes candidate. Right. Now scholar. Right. So there's, like, you know, four different stages, let's say, in the application. Well, let's just back up one second and say yeah. a Rhodes scholar is a designation for a really... Uh, highly decorated, but sort of, yeah. uh, what would you say? Like widely sophisticated academic? Like how do you describe what a Rhodes Scholar is other than brilliant? Well, I would say it's, first of all, perhaps the most coveted scholarship in the world. To Oxford. your choice of Oxford or Cambridge, right? No, just Oxford. Okay. To Oxford University. Mm -hmm. It is any discipline. And they're becoming much more inclusive and representative. They want interesting students who are studying a variety of different things, not just doctors. It's or a like, comprehensive kind of scholarship. Yeah, exactly. And each country has an allotted amount of scholars they can send. Mm -hmm. And the total amount of Rhodes Scholars per year worldwide, so it's from every country or so many countries in the world, is like only 90. Right. And Canada only gets to send um, like 10 or 11. Right. And across our country. So that's essentially just one or two per province. Right. Because we have Give X number. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Anyway, so um, my student, I mean, I, I, it's not my student, but a the student, student you taught. Yes. Right. A student in my class yep. had got through the different levels of application and made it to the finals. So in the finals, there were, let's call it, 12 candidates. And so I, um, I was with them on the day of the interview. They went to the interview. Then afterwards, we hung out because you can imagine how stressful that, that is because you do the interview or all 12 people do the interview and then they tell you essentially right after. Right. That was really surprising to me that you yeah. said that, that it's like uh, – it's like the call for the Nobel in The Wife, right? Yeah. It comes kind of in the moment. And you know it's happening. So I was with them. Right. Um, to, you know, take the 
like to take the edge off. And in this process, I learned more about who the other applicants were. Mm-hmm. Two of these applicants were Canadian students studying at Harvard and Stanford. Mm-hmm. Harvard and Stanford, as you can imagine, have their own Rhodes applications programs. For sure. Now, these two students decided to not apply through their Ivy League schools and instead go home or apply through home and take that loophole because it was less competitive. Right. I think what you're getting at, which is fascinating, is that it's possible even in sort of the most erudite institutions that are based on, you know, the the ringing the bell of academia in the highest way, there's still ways to game the system. And people are making careers of gaming the system. Is it the same as the gaming of the system that these 40 or some odd 50 people, rich people did? No. I'm just saying that there are different levels of advantage. Absolutely. That people take advantage of. Yeah. Now, in the end, it's a happy ending. The student from my program became the Rhodes Scholar, is at Oxford right now. And when, if I, out of privacy, I'm not going to share who this person is, but if you knew this student and ha- knew their work, it like you cannot deny this person. So it's a little ha-ha, um, probably an unfair ha-ha, considering these are all students, they all work hard, yes, no, well, and the other. Well, that's the other thing. They're going to be well-decorated. Like the, you can be, there's only however many, 12 slots or whatnot. The chances of earning one of those 12 are minuscule. Ergo, there are going to be many other opportunities for many other brilliant people. But again, the point is the gaming of the system exists in so many different iterations. Absolutely. And yeah, whether you're coming to the Ivy League of the North or, uh, <laughs> or yeah, putting your geographic region down as something else or, you know, applying for scholarships that are specific to you. Gaming the education system has become a full-time job for a lot of people, made a lot of people a lot of money, and this is outside of the completely legal uh, college counseling industries and uh, PSAT courses and all the rest of it, where this is absolutely an obsession of, uh, I think, almost anybody who has a child at one point or another. And the bottom line is what all this does is it makes higher education more and more inaccessible. And that is a fucking shame. Yeah, absolutely. And at the same time, we want more people to go. You know, it used to be that only a third of all high school students went in North America, went to a four-year institution, and that is changing. And then you get into is university for training and job training and connections, or is it for like, you know, a four-year study of Chaucer and Proust? And, you know, those are philosophical differences. But yeah, it's it's not going away. No, it's not going. But I mean, but I think that's what we can all agree on. It's It shouldn't be so hard for people who want to go to school to go to school. Well, no, but I have to say, um, and we're, you know, we could keep going and going, but there are many, many places that will give you a fine education. I don't mean fine like, oh, it's okay. I mean like a very good education without the designer label. There are many state schools. There are many universities in Canada that you've never heard of, in the UK, all kinds of places. It's not as though if you don't go to one of the top 25 schools 
that you're not going to get an education or an excellent education in many cases. And I think that's where Why aren't we saying more of that then? Well, because it's not advantageous to the uh, to the whitelisting of these institutions, right? Like the Ivy League is actually an athletic conference. That's what it is. Those eight schools, um, which is Harvard, Yale, Princeton, not Stanford. Many people think it is. Columbia, Cornell, Brown, Brown, Dartmouth, and uh, the University of Pennsylvania, which is not Penn State, and they get confused and people get mad. They were originally just colleges that played each other athletically. They're all vaguely Eastern. That's where it came from. They're no better in and of themselves than dozens of other schools. But people believe in the the name brand. Okay, so let's move on to our, this was supposed to be our first story, but I guess it's our second story. Sure. (laughs) Um, Big, big news. Yeah. Especially for Canadians. Yes. Lily Singh. Lily Singh, this was announced on Thursday night. Yeah. Um, that Lily Singh is uh, the first woman in decades upon decades to have a traditional late night hosting spot of a late night show. Uh, she's taking over the Carson Daly slot, and I believe it's going to be called A Little Late with Lily Singh. Yeah. Uh, and it begins in September. And this is a big deal for a lot of reasons, right? As you say, it's a big deal for Canadians. It's a big deal for Canadians. It's a big deal for new media and traditional media Uh and the hybrid of of what that looks like. Um, She's brown. She's queer. She's Canadian. I mean, she's a trailblazer in so many ways. Right. She's from Scarborough, uh, which if you're outside Toronto, doesn't mean much, but it's a very specific part of the city, which also home to the weekend. Scarborough's having a moment, Stefan James. Yep. It's, uh, it, it, they, they can grow them in Scarborough. Jim Carrey was from Scarborough. I mean. I'm pretty sure Mike Myers is from. <laughs> Mike Myers My- was from Scarborough. Yeah. That's true. Um, so it's a big deal. And. When we were talking about this before we started recording, we were sort of discussing which ways this story was important to us. Um, You know, obviously, to me, I think a lot about the fact that there are, of course, other female talk show hosts. But as the sort of shuffle has happened over the last decade or so, uh, Conan and Fallon and Seth Meyers and Letterman and Colbert and so forth. All the Jimmies. And all the Jimmies, yeah, Kimmel, there have always been like women's names that were kind of in the mix, but then not really. John Stewart, followed by Trevor Noah. Um, there are women who, obviously, Ellen is a massive talk show host, but not at night. Yeah. Uh, Samantha B has a phenomenal, phenomenal show, but it's not on a major network and airs only once a week. Same goes for Chelsea Handler, who was, uh, I think hers hers was daily, but it was on E, so not like the, the big three, essentially, or four if you want to count Fox, which, yeah, I mean, big three and a half there. Yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, of course, Busy Phillips, right? Um, yeah. Busy Tonight is a real success uh, that is is happening right now, but also is not on one of those traditional network shows where people would do the rounds and, you know, be on a late night host in the same way. So this is all the reasons why it's a trailblaze. That was what was sort of struck me the most. And for you, as you point out, Lily Singh came to fame on YouTube. Yeah. Out of her, from her own volition. 
created yeah. all her own stuff. That's right. Self-produced. Um, and we talked about her not too long ago, just back in November, because she announced that she was taking a break, a mental health break. Mm-hmm. And in that discussion, we talked about how smart it was that she was taking a break to recalibrate, to look after herself, um, and that her break illuminated the pressure of the online churn. Yes, to endlessly be coming up with something new, which, you know, is ironic because a show like this is live four nights a week or close to live. It'll be taped earlier that day. Look, I made a joke today with a colleague and I said, you know, this NBC gig is going to feel like a walk in the park for her. Um, Because, and this is what people don't realize sometimes for online content creators, I'm talking about YouTube. I'm talking about people who are Instagram influencers, you know, the ones who do it responsibly and <laughs> without like her, their parents scamming a college admission yeah, wait for them. There, yeah, wait Olivia Jade. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so online creators, I think that people dismiss it because it's a new, it's a new profession, but there is constant pressure to keep up, to, po- to post new content to produce new content, to cut it, to edit it. And she was burning out. And a lot of vloggers and a lot of bloggers and a lot of writers were burning out, have been burning out. And her break illuminated, I think, in a very big way, because she's a huge YouTuber, what that pressure feels like and how scary it is to maybe step back for two weeks and worry that the people who follow you will disappear and go to somewhere else. Well, or that the people who are nipping at your heels would be there, right? Like, that's the thing is that when new and unregulated industries uh, or new and unregulated ways of making media come into play, there are no rules, right? So people who hold themselves to a -a one-a-week schedule, for example, maybe are are vulnerable to people who decide, no, I'm going to do twice a week. They're going to put up more content. They're going to be there more. It, you know, there may be podcasters who are doing podcasts three times a week. And by sheer volume, uh, you sort of look askance and go like, oh, should I be worried? But yeah, now to also have that same volume, but with a team of writers, with a team of bookers, with people who are all united in what would appear to be your vision. I'm is- not saying it's going to be easy, but it's not going to be that same. Like, I think that it's, it's going to it's going to be hard work in a different way. It's exciting. It's like, exciting. It's exciting to I'm go, excited for her. Okay, we see what she can do on YouTube. What can she do now with a, a huge team? And I don't think I think Lily Singh had a team before, but you know, with a yeah. devoted team of experienced people who are and, working, yeah, and this kind of production value in a known format. Yeah. So I guess one of the things though that is interesting to me is that the the late night. Wars, as they were called once upon a time, you know, I mean, everything is a war. Everybody's always competing for viewers, for content, whatever. But when it's somebody who is the face of the show, it always seems to seem more personal, right? When it's, oh, is busy going to do well or not do well? It's about, well, is busy going to do well? It's not the same thing as, oh, did Chicago Fire get enough numbers? Mm -hmm. You know, it's a lot less anonymous. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I was listening to a great episode of the Conan podcast recently where he and Colbert are talking. And God, that's a fascinating masterclass about sort of the monkeys on their backs and, and how they do it. But it's very personal when you and your name are 
the face and the name of the show. So in the same context as, you know, her feeling a lot of pressure and the breaks that she took, I'm wondering about how much time we think she's going to be given to find her feet, find her legs, as they often talk about. Like each of these shows is supposed to have a tone. Yeah. Even though they're the same, essentially. Well, I, I don't, it's a half a year and I'm not mad at that. You know, it is, it's half a year of what, we're in March. They haven't nailed down a date in September. She just said sometime in September, obviously after Labor Day, we'll see like if it's the Emmys are in September. Mm -hmm. So typically shows premiere after the Emmys. Yep. So we're looking at the second half of September. Mm -hmm. So we, it's about six months. Um, it's six months from now for sure. Yeah. I love that they're not rushing her. And of course it's timed with the conventional television cycle. So what they'll do, and you know, this is they'll push her out the upfront in June. Mm -hmm. So the upfront basic, basic, basic is where all the big networks go to New York. They present their like existing schedules and their new schedules or their new programs they like release the weekly. So on Mondays, this is what happens at 7, 8, 9, 10, and then Tuesday, whatever, whatever. It's for advertisers, That's right? right. It's for advertisers to say, oh, that show at, uh, at Tuesdays at 9 looks really sexy. I want to buy some spots there. Yeah. Or Thursdays at 10 or whatever it is. And you're right. She yeah. will be a real uh, headline as a part of that. Yeah. They'll cut a sizzle, mm -hmm. right? Probably. Like oh, sure. The yeah. way… The way, and a sizzle reel is, you know, that thing that you see. It's like a trailer, but… It's a two-minute tease of some of the best moments of the show. Yeah. Uh, which, because it won't be taping yet, is going to be maybe some segments that they might do or sketches or, uh, you know, she has a lot of celebrity friends who are congratulating yeah. her. So they'll have some sort of soft pre-booked guests to to test it out. Exactly. So they'll they'll show a sizzle. They'll get the money lined up. And, but essentially she's going to have probably not six months. Um, I would say the, like the set will have to be built by what, August? Oh yeah, yeah. They'll be, yeah. they'll be taping rehearsals by then and all that kind of thing. They'll, they'll test things out to see what works. But I guess what I'm wondering is obviously it's a different format than when she was speaking directly to people through YouTube, you know, which is a much more intimate, uh, a much more intimate platform. So what I wonder is how long people will give her or the network will give her to find the format once it's broadcasting, once the numbers start coming in. And what will change about her humor, which is pretty, you know, which is pretty distinctive and that's why she's become mm -hmm. so successful so far in order to fit that late night mold or to change it, right? Or yeah. to be like, well, hey, I'm a new person. I'm coming from a new place. They didn't hire an SNL alum. They didn't hire a stand-up. They hired somebody who's a totally different brand. So yeah, I'm curious about what will change in that way. You know, she hasn't said much, but when she was on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon to introduce this, she did promise that it is going to be similar. Like people will see a familiarity between what they're already getting on her YouTube channels and on the show. Just better produced, like a more slick production value. Sure. Because part of the reason NBC has signed her is because they want a piece of that digital pie. Makes perfect sense. So a lot of the content is going to be either packaged solely, like specifically, like Carpool Karaoke is, right? Right. Carpool Karaoke is packaged specifically to live online and he throws to it during his show. 
So if you're in the audience, like you're just watching a taped piece that essentially lives on YouTube. Like the moment they hit play in the studio is the moment they upload it online. So they're going to be doing a lot of that with Lily's content because of course NBC is trying to leverage her 14 or so, it's probably growing YouTube million followers. Right. Um, so that's, I think that's what's smart. Like they're saying, we're not going to swallow you into the conventional TV format. We still want to keep, like we still actually want to, for lack of a better word, exploit your digital presence. So I love that. I think it's super smart. Um, but I also know network TV and how people live. And I am, I hope that will be the case. And obviously, as we say, she's a groundbreaking presence in a lot of ways. She's a brown woman who is queer. She is not the traditional face in a suit that we're used to seeing. So I hope that if there are initially some bobbles in ratings as people find her, because of course it's a different audience, right? Yeah. A different person goes to YouTube for their entertainment than turns on NBC specifically at yeah. 1.35 in the morning and watches her live or plus seven days on the PVR or whatever. So I hope that they give all those different formats and all those sort of digital advantages a chance to settle into that format. Well, what's interesting is, and and this is where I'm most fascinated, um, and there is a parallel here between this discussion and our previous discussion about status. Mm-hmm. And oh, how absolutely. We, I have several friends who have teenage daughters Mm -hmm. and they love Lily Singh. Like they're the ones who've gone to the mall to meet her. And at those, you know, YouTube does festivals in major cities, maybe not even just major cities all the time. They've lined up to meet her. They're like 15 and 16 now. They were doing this when they were 12. So they've grown up with Lily Singh. And when they heard the news, they were excited about it. This is supposedly the generation. So we're talking... 15, 16-year-olds who are like, what's that um, unplugged? No, uncorded. uh, Oh, like uh, cable cutters. Yeah. Cord cutters. Cord cutters, right? And so that's supposedly the generation that has no interest in cable. Right. Um, And she has suddenly, like she's at least made them interested in what this show is about. They might not stay up that late, but for sure they're going to be one of the first things that they're going to be checking on their phones when they wake up before they go to school is what did Lily do last night on a little late? And I think that that is really fascinating because for the last decade, we've been talking about new media and we've been talking about, hey, so-and-so, for example, the MagCon kids, you know, Cameron Dallas, Dallas Cameron, those guys. Yeah, Sean Mendez, all those dudes who were sort of the original – YouTube heartthrobs. Vine, YouTube, and all of them have like millions and millions of followers. In some in some cases, their millions of YouTube followers exceed the viewer amount of conventional TV shows. Sure. And all yet, the time. All the time. And yet the holy grail for all of them, including Lily Singh, is to go to traditional media, to be a television and or movie star. Well, and let's be clear, the reason that's the holy grail isn't because they think it's better. That's my opinion. I'm talking, uh, I'm speaking my opinion, but I don't think anybody thinks, hey, you're not really a comedian until you can tell jokes across a wood desk. 
what I think is the reason that that's the holy grail is that's where the money is. That's where the reliable money is. Obviously, YouTube has all kinds of advertisers and money and you can control your own things. But sometimes, as we've talked about, money comes in the form of infrastructure. Money comes in the form of a staff, of a prescribed traveling schedule, of, you know, somebody else worrying about the ads. So the status of that is, I think, still about, partly about the money and also partly about, well, there's never been one like you here before. Let's see if you can do it. Like the elephant in the room, sorry, I'm cutting you off there. The elephant in the room is there hasn't been one of these. Maybe a woman can't hack this. Maybe a woman can't, Mm -hmm. which is preposterous. It's just they haven't. So let's see it. It is also, as you said, you the word status came out of your mouth. Absolutely. And so the through line here with our previous discussion about Ivy League universities is there is status. Like there is, listen, it's decades of fortifying a message. Movie stars, TV stars, radio stars, right? <laughs> um, and that kind of conditioning doesn't go away in one generation or half a generation. There is still... That's why the Oscars, even though they've taken some hits and are a little bit bruised, are still the Oscars. We have been conditioned, they too, in the industry, have been conditioned to look at that trophy as the one trophy you want over and above the Tony and the Emmy and the Golden Globe and the Grammy. Right. But it's almost status for its own status' sake, right? Like it doesn't actually, as we know, the more we talk about this and the more we look at like Green Book winning Best Picture or whatever, the status doesn't actually denote anything except that, yeah, you have that stamp on your show business passport. But it is interesting that like as we move, quote, forward with technology and media, there is, I'm not saying it goes backwards. I'm not saying these people are wanting to go backwards or wanting, wanting to go back into history. But it is interesting that it is still aspirational to want to be there, to want to be behind that wood desk, to want to have, you know, for all, like for over and above the, over and above the logistical reasons you named, like technical resources and, you know, stability behind you, a lot of this, and remember, this is a celebrity industry. Of course, image matters in this. There Absolutely. is something to the status, just like there is something to the Harvards and the Yales and the whatever. And yeah, part of that is their... the illusion that we buy into. Nobody gets to that point by being shitty, by all means. But yeah, especially if we're talking about late night hosts and there are in a few enough that we can only name them by first name. It's by no means the only path to legitimacy, right? So it's uh, it's an interesting, it's a carrot that who would walk away if you were offered? Nobody would say, no, thanks. I'm above that. I don't need it. Who would walk away from the Oscar, right? It's like, oh, here's an Oscar nomination. You'd be like, no, I'm good. Like, come on. Yeah. There are people who say, oh, I don't campaign or I don't want to play that game. Yeah. But it, even if it doesn't mean that much to you, there's still a value in participating in playing that game for sure. Well, what's exciting is that there's been a lot of angsting about whether conventional and traditional TV is dead. There are lots of reasons to say that it's not dead. But for right now, this is a great experiment. Like I called it a hybrid between new and traditional media. It's, it's exciting. I want to see where this experiment goes. Yeah, for sure. And I want to see, 
you know, whether just getting that title is enough of an experiment? Is that an experiment that says it has worked? Or as you say, bringing in some of the online content? Or will we see some other qualitative changes? Uh, because it's a show hosted by a woman, because it's a show hosted by a young woman. I think she's only in her early 30s. It's a different stage of life than a lot of these men who we've known by their first names. Um, what will be one of the changes that we expect from late night? Or as you point out, it's going to be so widely watched digitally that we'll stop calling it late night. Like it will be it's the talk show format, but, you know, it's not illicit and staying up late because that's not what it needs to be about anymore. It's just when it happens to be dropped online, essentially. Well, I will say she's definitely, Lily, I mean, set herself up for success. Like, she hasn't been doing YouTube for just two years. It's been almost a decade. And in that time, she's been producing her own videos, so she understands a sense of production and writing and all that, what goes into it, number one. But also in that time, as her star has risen, the opportunities that she's had is in public speaking. She attends conferences and conventions all the time. She has conducted like informal interviews. She does TED Talks. She's been on talk shows. Like what I saw out of her on the seven minutes that she was with Fallon is someone who's really natural at being on camera in that setting because she's practiced. Not a lot of digital stars who, you know, do their thing where the skateboard runs into a wall. Um, <laughs> not to be disparaging of like many of the popular YouTubers, right. but a lot of it is like either pranks or video gaming, right? Or a lot like, of commenting on other videos. That's for- right. And YouTubing is you get into one comfort zone and you don't get to go out and actually exercise and build new muscles. She's been doing that for a decade. And so she looked real comfortable. Well, what's most important to me in that vein is she has a lot of celebrity fans. And that isn't just for the sake of status, even though that helps, obviously, but because those people will become her bread and butter. Being interested in other people And I think one of the things that you talk about is a lot of YouTube stars, especially the ones who are straight to camera, um, are kind of only interested in themselves. Mm -hmm. And the specific job of being a late night host involves interviews and being interested in other people and being funny while you're doing it. Yeah. That's a really specific and surprisingly difficult thing to do. And that's a skill that's going to serve her really well, being interested enough in other people that they want to come on and play with her and that they will do that even if the initial like getting started bumps are a little bumpy. But I like, that's that's probably my favorite part of this story is that it it didn't happen overnight. No, no, by no means. And And I think that there's an illusion now with like quick followers, quick, you know, Instagram accounts that blow up that you know, the next step is, boom, you go to that other thing. And if you really break it down, Lily Singh's been doing this for a long time. She's an OG, for sure. Like when people didn't really understand the format. So no, it's a natural progression and also something that allows for this ages old format to be brand new. I agree. And selfishly for me, like I am a talk show host and I do it every day live also for an hour, Monday to Friday. And at the risk of sounding like an asshole, 
people think it looks easy and it only looks easy when you're doing you've done it for so long. When you've built that muscle. That's right. right. And Lily made it look easy at least on on Thursday with Jimmy Fallon. She looked very natural, she looked very comfortable and I can I can only say that it's because she's put in the work. There's that real cheesy uh Pinteresty uh, comment that comes up now and again, and I want to hate it because I don't like Pinterest or those Instagram sort of beauty captions, but it says, you know, the work's not e- getting easier. You're getting better at it. Yeah. And I think this is a real indication of that. Yeah. It's happening because she's ready, not because somebody decided to take a chance on a YouTube star. I love that. I, I love what you just said. It's happening because she's ready. hundred percent. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finally, um, I don't know what other segue to use to this story other than the one that you just did when we were off mic, when well, we were lining this up. I wasn't trying to be shady, <laughs> but as we were discussing which topic to go to and where to go from here, I said, you know, I mean, the other thing is, like, the reason it's a nice flow is because it goes from new to old, and that's when you started cracking up, like you're doing now. Well, the new would be Lily Singh. That's right. And the old would be... JK Rowling. Um, I mean, I'm sorry. And we're not talking like numeric old. No, it's not about being an old person. But it, it feels like somebody who was giving us so many fresh things and fresh ideas is now like have has, like has run out. Or I don't know. Because you know that expression. I wish she would just stop. Well, they say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, right? <laughs> like yeah, I, <laughs> more shade, Duanna. All right. Uh, okay, so you know what we're talking about here. This is uh, that J.K. Rowling has, and I love that you still call her Joe, um, <laughs> but that she has, you know, uh, after the release of uh, the crimes of Grindelwald, or sorry, do you want to say Grindelwald all fancy? I, I don't want to be fancy about it, but like um, in the movie, which I just watched, yeah, it's the, everybody keeps calling him Grindelwald. So I I would like to keep going as Grindelwald, but how accurate do we need to be? I, I No, who cares? <laughs> I mean, I'm going to... I'm going to be a real good person and put aside that you mocked me for my pronunciation <laughs> of some of her names and just go with, uh, with Grindelwald. I mocked you for pronouncing the names wrong, both like period in the movie and everywhere. Like, you know, I'm just saying that in the fucking movie, his name is Grindelwald. Fine. Anyway, so the movie dropped and uh, it was available, as you pointed out, for rent uh, this past weekend suddenly. Yeah. And uh, on the heels of that, she... uh, This is Fantastic Beasts 2. Yes. Right, right. Came out in November. I didn't see it in the theater. Right. Neither did you. But no, I did not. 
Um, which, but that's, I mean, that's a point to be made. It didn't feel necessary. And you race out to every movie known to man. I race. And you didn't go. I race, like I pre-buy tickets, right? I pre-buy tickets. I, and I was like, I can't remember. November was really busy. Oh, I was on holiday. I mean, that's not an excuse. (laughs) Yeah. I was, I was worried about going on holiday. So anyway, it wasn't a, fucking priority for me for various reasons. But to your point, it like I make priorities. <laughs> when something is a priority, it's a priority. Yeah. It was still in theaters a week after you got home from <laughs> vacation. I think, you know. And, and which is a point in and of itself because you and I are like Harry Potter fans. Yep. Big fan. La- the kind, like we lined up at midnight to get new books when the original series was released. We read them like overnight. And then at like six in the morning, we called each other. And before we even went to bed, like this is, this is how devoted we were. We have like the clothing. Well, deep, deep into the fandom because it had so much because there was this amazing story unfolding, right? When that was happening, when we were calling each other after midnight book purchases, there was this wonderful, twisted story that was unfolding and happening. And we felt like we were a community. Right. And you wanted to know what was going to happen. And then, of course, at the end of the seventh book, which we were told Six Ways to Sunday was the last book that would ever happen in the series, it's like, okay, this is the end. Um, And now, of course, the, the Fantastic Beasts series is sort of an extension of the Harry Potter universe while not being a Harry Potter story. Yeah. And some of the same characters exist. And I can't take the face you're making at me right now. You know, in cartoons, um, <laughs> often in like Snoopy cartoons, like there's a, there's a style, I don't even know what it's called, where you indicate that somebody is dead by X's over their eyes instead of an eye and a tongue hanging out. That's the face that you're making at me right now. That's the one. I'm not, yes. And it's not directed at you. It's like, I'm so exhausted because you mentioned the characters and the carryover and whatnot. And so, yeah, at the end of Deathly Hallows, she came out, I don't know, at a reading and she was like, oh, P.S. Dumbledore is gay. And right. even then people were like, Um, but, but the love was so strong at that point. And she, her work up to that point was so deep and profound and solid that we're like, okay. People want to know what happened afterwards as people always want to know, which drives me fucking nuts. Because if you were (laughs) supposed to know, then that's where the story would end. Right. I don't like epilogue chapters 19 years later. And I don't like, um, follow-up things. You know, I even look askance at Big Little Lies too, because you don't need to know what's going to happen after the end of a story. I'm not going to fight you on that, but that's what happened. And we kind of like let it go back then because we were like, there's no more. So she can't like ruin it with giving us like Dumbledore porn. So whatever. But but there was no (laughs) thought that she would ruin it. That was not even a a conversation. No, it was still valid for her to be discussing these characters. So nobody was mad at her then. Of course not. In fact, I might've been like, oh, that's cool. A little bonus. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Then she fucking comes out with this new shit. Well, okay. So let's be clear. If you've never listened to Harry Potter or read Harry Potter in your life, um, that character Dumbledore appears in the Fantastic Beast series much younger uh, yeah. than in the Harry Potter series. It's a prequel, if you will. So in the second movie, 
she, after it dropped, discusses Dumbledore and Grindelwald and their relationship, which was like thinly veiledly hinted at in uh, Deathly Hallows. And she says this about their uh, relationship, which is meant to be a romance. Their relationship was incredibly intense. It was passionate and it was a love relationship. But as happens in any relationship, gay or straight or whatever label we want to put on it, yes, I'm mentally asterisking that as you are, one never knows really what the other person is feeling. You can't know. You can believe you know. So I'm less interested in the sexual side, though I believe there is a sexual dimension to this relationship, than I am in the sense of the emotions they felt for each other, which ultimately is the most fascinating thing about all human relationships. End quote. So, so she's being dragged for this. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> and people are like, okay. Well, where do we start? Yeah. Right. <laughs> First of all, I would like to start with gay or straight or whatever. Label. That comes real close to, I don't care if they're black or white or green with purple stripes. All lives matter. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> but, okay. You know... I was having a conversation with somebody today. Uh-huh. This was their point. They were like, stop, characterize this person. I don't care who they are. I don't okay. care if they're black or white or green with purple stripes. No, but I care if they are a Harry Potter fan or somebody who just read this in the media. They're not hardcore. But they know. But they know what Harry Potter is. Mm, okay. And they were like, hey, you know what? Like, and they are LGBTQ advocates. Sure. They're like, you know… Yeah, like, it's not great to, like, after the fact, add on this because you're performing, like, awareness. And inclusion. And inclusion and representation. Like, just to shove it in. Right. Which, let's clarify, um, Rowling has been accused of before. Yeah. Um, Shoving shit in. Oh, yeah. Like, people said to her, the the context here is that she's always adding more information that nobody asked for. Or when they do ask, they're like, how come you didn't have any Jewish characters? Instead of saying, you know what? I didn't think of it. Or you're right. She goes, oh, no, there was Anthony Goldstein. You just never saw him. <laughs> what? <laughs> right. So she, like, this person I was talking to was like, on that, on that end, sure. Like, it's, you know, jamming it in to perform a certain, like, um, to perform and put on your, like, cloak of inclusiveness when you didn't really, at the beginning, is shitty. And then she was like, and yet, in these movies, in these stories, like, nobody has sex anyway. Like, it's it's not heavily about the romance. So I don't go into these movies hoping for, like, gay representation or even, like, a, like a sex scene period and, and love and all that because that's not where I'm like, that's what I'm not what I'm there for. Okay. And to be fair, a lot of people feel this way. They're like, well, like is Harry Potter where I'm like, or wizarding world where I'm getting that. I'm just laying that down. I'm not saying I agree with it. I'm I, just saying that that is one counterpoint. I get it. I'm biting my tongue trying to, to not jump on all the reasons why I have to counterpoint. Um, but yeah, I I get that, I suppose. But of course, part of people's issue with this characterization to begin with, I think there are two things here. There's this characterization of these characters after the fact. And then there's whether you need to be messing around with things that you didn't put mm-hmm. in the books or movies, right? Yeah. Um, 
So my first reaction, which I think is probably your first reaction too, is there are plenty of straight relationships on screen, even in the wizarding universe, right? Yes. There are romances between teen characters. They're little chaste crushes, but they exist. Later on, many, many straight characters get married or are married. And so heterosexual love exists in these relationships. No, there's no sex ever. But I think this is part of the criticism, right? The idea that a gay relationship, a love between two men could be boiled down to, oh, well, it's not a sex scene. So it's not the sexual side of that relationship. Like uh, uh, two people loving each other is two people loving each other. It's not about gay sex is the argument. Which she tried to like talk about. Yeah. Basically, uh, she I was don't like, really they were the fucking off screen is essentially what. <laughs> it was a passionate relationship. No, was it? Because they vaguely looked at each other. They clasped hands. Yeah. I, okay. <laughs> But I mean, but that you can see why that comes across as being homophobic, either by Rowling or the filmmakers. It's like, if that's the case, then show it. I can definitely see the argument of we've never seen passionate kisses and and love scenes between two characters in this universe. But if they're not doing that, then... Are they in a world where that's not acceptable? If that's the case, let's see it. If they're just buds, then... <laughs> just buds. <laughs> right. If they're just buds, yeah, then that's okay. But then don't try and claim that you yep. are here for this community. And for all of us, I'm, you know, I want to see these relationships represented on screen just as much as anybody else. Then go ahead and represent them properly. I, listen, and, and this is like the bigger problem of her, like, extending her story and shoving shit in Mm -hmm. and, like, changing the canon, right? There are many instances, I'm not going to nerd out here, where she's almost like changing the rules of what canon can't be done and what this and that is the other in the world that she's created. It's bonkers, but... Well, the reason it's bonkers is because of how specific it is. It's often... Because she was so specific. Yes, of course. But like, yeah, it's about what happened with like people's poop. Yeah. Or... or It's magical rules, right? Like, anyway, but I will tell you like the biggest WTF for me, I was watching the movie this weekend, is I'm going to spoil the movie for you. Sorry. But... You know, I'm assuming if people are going to see it, they saw it in theaters, and I'm going to spoil it. Spoiler alert, everybody. You ready, Duanna? I'm ready. Let's go. At the end of it, you know, even though you haven't seen the movies, that Ezra Miller is in it. Yeah. And he plays… Yeah, that's not a selling point, but yeah. yes. So he plays this, like, mystery. Nobody knows who he is. He has this dark magic, and… He needs to find his identity, and he keeps looking, like, for dead ends. And in the end, the big fucking reveal, like, Gellert, Grindelwald, whatever, Johnny Depp, tells him at the very end, he's like, oh, yeah, you're a Dumbledore. So, (laughs) she just, I was, first of all, the movie is shit, so I had to sit through, like, some shit, and then at the very end, this bombshell comes down, like, I'm like, what? So Dumbledore has a secret brother? We already know Aberforth. Yeah. And Ariana, yeah, his dead these are sister. legitimate siblings, yes. Right. 
And we already know a lot of his backstory. It's very sad. His sister died. You know, well, that but, stuff was all built in. Though you can point that's to canon. the pages yes. on the text Correct. where that exists. And he also comes from a pretty prominent wizarding world, right? Like, I, okay, yeah. And so, and also, he's kind of like a wizard detective. Like, you know, growing up, growing up, <laughs> growing Are up. Are you referring to yourself? Growing yes, up, you're pointing yes. to yourself. Growing up, when I was in my 30s, yeah. I believe this is what you're telling growing me. Growing up, did we doubt that like Dumbledore had gaps of knowledge? Well, no. I mean, I, I, at the risk of going too far down the the hole here, no, it's, you know, the word for it is retcon, right? Is retroactive continuity or retroactively explaining something that you've shoehorned in. Duanna, he knew everything. I, yeah, but okay. And so, suddenly he has a secret brother. What is, what the fuck just happened? Okay, so what we're talking about here... And he's gay and has sex off screen. And there's, let's be clear, there's nothing wrong. It's even delightful that we learned that he was gay at the end of the Harry Potter series. It's just shoehorning in all these things. But it's also then cheating it. It's like saying, oh, no, such and such a character is actually a person of color. We just never address it ever in the books or movie, oh, they just happened to be played by a white person because they were, but actually secretly they were black. Like, that's not okay. That's not a thing that we that we do any more than that representation, specifically if you're then going to see that character for several more movies that are either released or in the hopper. So that's why people are so upset. Yeah. Um, as one amazing tweet says uh, from Eric D. Snyder, J.K. Rowling confirms some characters in her books or mo- and movies are gay everywhere except in the books or movies. <laughs> right? Like, don't do us any little favors and have that shit happen off screen. And, of course, why does she continue to manipulate the stories after the fact? Like, so much has been made of this woman in two specific ways. That she has... Every detail of this world worked out yes. and included, right? Yes. And the books and especially the movies were incredibly long and dense at the end so that she could include every solitary detail. Yes. And the other part of her lore that has been repeated over and over is she has such control over everything that happens with these universes that, you know, when when the theme parks are being created, she tasted and looked at everything, that she had yes. every detail down to a science. So suddenly now she's like, oh, oops, I forgot. There's all kinds of other contexts here to make it, what, socially relevant? It feels tacky and it feels opportunistic. And that's why people are so upset because A, I mean, there's a million amazing Twitter memes about nobody asking for this and that, you know, people saying, yeah, nobody asked for this. And then, oh, by the way, like uh, the sorting hat likes to peg people, like whatever it is. But also that it seems it's cheating, essentially. It's not saying, hey, I didn't address some of these things. I didn't make this as socially relevant as I could. Oops. Or or these books exist outside of sort of a social canon like that. Instead, she's like, oh, no, oops, I forgot. It actually was like this. 
Like it's a little bit like when, you know, when you're no, a teenager. No, it's a little bit like, here's a potion. I can fix it with a potion. Well, right. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I see. You're actually incorporating her. <laughs> you're actually incorporating her retconning into the yeah. magical realm. I see what's <laughs> happening here. But you know what it makes me think of? You know, when you're a teenager and you're growing up and you say, oh, we're going to go, the plans have changed, mom. We're going to go to a different movie theater or whatever. And my mother could always smell from a mile away. She'd be like, wait a minute now. Your story doesn't make sense. Uh-huh. And you would say, oh, well, I just remembered. Actually, it's because Stephanie's sister needs to go buy something at a store that's there. <laughs> what store? Um, well, but it's a store, but like they don't have it at the mall near to us. So we're going to go to a different one. Like it's just layers upon layers of not thought out excuses that only indicate and underscore the point of you, you just didn't do the work on your lie if you're a teenager or on your books that, you know, people are looking for this representation. But she did do the work. You know what I mean? Like, this is what's so frustrating. I, like, I'm not, there's no pleasure in this entire conversation, this segment of the no, conversation. No, I know. You're wincing I and have so in much pain. pain. I have pain. You look like when Snoopy is dead. Yeah. Like, I, it's exacerbating my menstrual cramps. I, this is not a painkiller for me. Like it is because I, we loved her. We love, I don't know. I don't know what the tense of the verb is anymore. Um, But she did do the work. That's the thing. The work was there. It's very famous. She was on the train. Then she went fucking like sat at the cafe and she's got a box of like secrets and all of that was there. And it was very, very more than satisfying. Yeah. But if she had left that (gasps) on the table, then that could be the work. And we could say, yeah, she did the work. But here's the thing. Now she is venturing into the realm of, for lack of a better term, being socially woke. And here's the thing. You and I talk about this on this podcast all the time. Part of being aware of what's going on is being willing to be wrong, is being willing to say, you know what? I didn't think about that. I didn't see it that way. Instead, she's always hand-waving like, oh, no, I did think about it. It just doesn't appear anywhere. Oh, no, they're totally gay. They just, um, it's just gay sex doesn't happen. How about like love between two people, like romantic love? Oh, no, it just, um, they just don't do like that. And here's the added layer of complication, which maybe is a controversial thing to say in and of itself, is she doesn't mean badly. You know what I mean? Like you can, it's so almost easier to get mad at people who are like, they have bad intent. Right. Like, I don't think she sits around with bad intent. Like she doesn't sit around hoping like that LGBTQ rights get taken away from them. Of course not. Right. Like this is what I'm saying. Like she thinks she's meaning well. I I guess so. But it seems to me, I believe you and I want to believe you that she doesn't have, but it's not that she has ill will in the sense that she uh, hopes that, you know, people don't have those rights, but an unwillingness, what it feels like to me is she's trying to get out of trouble, that she's unwilling to be anything other than the adored, vaunted JK Rowling that she's been. And she keeps trying to like skitter her way out of oh, I'm in a bit of trouble instead of saying, wow, I didn't think about that. That's where I disagree. I don't think that was the original sin. Which part? Like getting out of trouble. I don't think that's what got her into trouble. The original sin here is, I mean, to take it right back to the beginning, 
The original sin is what you pointed out about the Felicity Huffmans and the Lori Lachlans of the world is how do you top yourself? The original sin is trying to top yourself in just to be clear where that relates to the people who committed the fraud in the college admissions scandal. And that's like one of the most like excellent points in a piece that was just full of excellent points that you wrote was what do you do when you are already the most successful you can be? When you have children and you almost know that because you've attained so much and you like got to the top, like ultimately, inevitably, your kids won't ever soar to those heights. Sure. And it's the, in a way, the equivalent of like her birth was the first seven books. Yeah. And when you already lay down a masterpiece… Like, the original sin to me is she's like, I want to replicate it, but go back and do it with the same thing. Just give it like a brother. Well, but I guess uh, it's two sides of the same coin. I do see the simile that you're building there, um, that she's trying to puff up the second series uh, to be as good as the first. But I think, especially because we're talking about a character who crosses between both worlds, I think, you know, uh, there are things that are valid criticisms without taking away. We used to talk about whataboutism, you know, well, what about this and what about that? And you can have something that is a successful, even a vaunted work uh, and still have criticisms of it, right? Like there's no such thing as perfect. And I think that's okay, but it's also okay to take yourself out of that conversation If people say Harry Potter or the Fantastic Beasts series or the characters therein um, are not as representative of today's world as they would like them to be, I think the argument there is to go, yeah, wow, I didn't think about it. Not to say, oh, but they are kind of really, if you look a little bit more, also uh, check out this information about, I don't know, the sorting hat. I, I think it feels scapegoaty and, and not wanting to wear that criticism. And that's where I have a big problem. I understand what you're saying, that you feel as though she's just trying to uh, create the same mythos around the Fantastic Beast series. And I think part of the reason we're having this conversation is because those characters cross over. But I don't, I wish she would just wear it and say, yeah, gosh, people have thoughts and questions now about the world and the series that they didn't have when I was coming up with it circa 91, and they're valid, and they're not things I considered. I I think it's okay for her to just sit in that and say that if she's going to continue to be a part of the conversation. Yeah, and I think that what we're all saying is that, like, we didn't need to. Yeah, we well, that's right. <laughs> we didn't. Right? Yeah. Yeah, like, nobody's going back and being like, hey, Tolkien, uh, where's your LGBTQ representation? If Harry Potter 7 mm-hmm. had been left as Harry Potter 7... And I the think, whole world was closed. That's right. I don't think that we would like go back understanding that it was of its time. And the problem is that like there was an attempt. There are, not was an attempt. There is now an attempt to be like, hey, doing this all over again. Well, and now you come to my favorite question about everything, but especially about this, and especially if you're going to link it to the admission scandal and sort of our theme of status, why? And the reason why, as far as I'm concerned, is because 
she wants to be talking about this still. Like, uh, you know, I haven't been paying attention to the box office for The Crimes of Grindelwald or whatever. I think it probably did fine. It wasn't a flop, right? I don't think it's as big as like… No, of no. course. But it yeah. was fine. But she wants to keep talking. She's not being asked for a quote every single day anymore. She's not giving an interview six times a day anymore. And so this is about wanting to engage with, you know, she's always been great about engaging with fans and engaging with the people who created Pottermore, which was the extension of the world and wanting more people to talk about. This is on some level about wanting to reclaim the status of being the god of a fictional world who could explain whatever about the world to you. Hey, why do house elves blah, 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 blah. Um, And she was like, oh, I can explain that to you. She enjoyed being this architect of this fantasy, like a Tolkien, like a um, Game of Thrones. um, George R. R. Martin. George R. R. Martin. You know, like every little part of the world had had an answer to every question. But people aren't asking as much, and she's coming out with it anyway. And, you know, if we take you at, if we take your side of our previous argument and say, okay, she's not just trying to be relevant and get herself out of trouble. She just wants more for her series, more for her second born. Then it's like, okay, she just wants more attention and for more people to ask her more questions. And in the absence of people asking those questions, she's just volunteering answers. That's not great either. No, it's not great. I... I have, like, again, I have a lot of pain. I know. And I'm not going to belabor it too much, but I will say what's interesting about it to me is we say this often on this show, but, like, she has all the money she's ever going to want. And she has all the recognition. You know, when I Googled her age just now, she was born in 1965. Um, She has a string of letters after her name, uh, not least uh, OBE, the Order of the British Empire. She has all the status she's ever going to want. She has all the money she's ever going to want. And so what she lacks, what she's looking for, you're actually not even making eye contact with me because you're so sad about this. Um, But the thing that she still seeks is attention and love and glory. And that is, I I actually have never seen you look like this. You look like I've kicked a puppy. I'm despondent. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't like to hear her described, like, if I didn't know we were talking about it, the adjectives that you're using and the descriptors would be, like, you're describing, like, (laughs) I can't say it. (laughs) Well, I know what you mean because I can read your face, but I think the people listening deserve to know the direction that your thoughts are going. No, they know, they know, they know, you know, don't make us say it. But you're also not telling me I'm wrong. You love to fight with me, and you're not sitting here and telling me I'm wrong. I'm just going to try and sneak a picture of you looking down at your microphone. Um, okay, so… Uh, Can we go now? Yeah. Is there is there a <laughs> lesson to take away here? Is there is something you want to close out on? The lesson is um, it's okay to go back and be like, yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, it's also okay just to go away for a while and like think. And come up with new things. That's also Like Lily did. Like Lily did. 
Uh, we will be back next week when I hope I'll have recovered. I hope you will too. Um, I, I, I am a little bit, I, I, I've never seen you like this. I might've actually broken you. I, it took this long. Uh, thank you as always for all your emails and all your thoughts on Twitter and on Instagram. Please keep them coming. They are amazing. And I'm sure I'm going to be hearing about it from uh, some very vocal fans. Subscribe to us where you get your podcasts. Leave comments. Please leave reviews. They help us so much. We'll be back next week. Bye. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 